Greetings, programs, and welcome to the Awesome Friday Podcast. Uh, my name is Matthew, and with me today is Simon, and we're going to talk about some movies. But before we do that, how are you today, Simon? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I'm fine. Uh, uh, Halloween candy sugar apocalypse. Uh, I don't need to recap all that. All our Patreon listeners have already heard this, but... Basically, it's the most wonderful time of the week where someone with no portion control and works from home is surrounded by chocolates. It's great. How are so you? That's a that's a weekly occurrence. You said it was the best time of the week, so I'm assuming um, that just like every every weekend, someone drops yeah, chocolate in your lap. That that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? It's the best time of the week if a week break. Right. I, of course. It's, we're, we're getting to when the clocks change the clocks change this morning so now it's going to be dark by three o'clock um i haven't i've given up alcohol for a while i haven't drunk anything since the beginning of october so i've got to have some vices left i've got to have something that is not like uh just normal so i'm replacing it with um halloween candy which is always nice did you uh did you go trick-or-treating in your neighborhood i'm sure didn't we uh we did <laughs> Nothing of the sort in our tiny apartment building. Um, uh, but you know, we're we're adults. It's fine. We're adults with no kids. There's no kids in our building, uh, which is a purposeful choice, apparently. Um, and uh, so yeah, we didn't. We stayed in. We watched. We watched horror movies. I've been doing this thing lately where I keep track of everything that I watch. On, so I make a list every month on Letterboxd where I just add things that I've seen for the first time in that month. And October was the busiest one of those lists so far this year. And it is a lot of horror movies. We watched a lot mm -hmm. of horror movies. And in particular, I think I've, uh, I've been going out of my way to see things I haven't seen before. So mm -hmm. um, there's, been, uh, there's been a lot of horror movies. Uh, which helps because my wife is a huge, as you, as you know, a huge horror movie buff. Yeah, and but I, so. I also think your wife is exactly the kind of person who'd like to get up dressed up in a cute, scary costume and go door to door and collect like gummies from people. I feel like that's her jam. I mean, yeah, maybe. If uh, honestly, if we if we'd like come over to hang out with you guys, we probably would have had a great time. But we didn't do that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> well, but anytime you want, that's fine. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, on on, uh, I know we need to move forward, but just while we're talking about amazing horror movies, can I just say how excited I am that the sequel to It Follows has been announced called They Follow. Same director, same cast. Feed it into my veins, like rub it into my gums. Show me <laughs> the way to that theater. I, uh, I'm going to make just... the same joke I made on Twitter, which is that I'm pleased they made a follow-up. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Are you sure you have kids? <laughs> Come on, it's just sitting there waiting. Like, well, yeah, it's a whole. It's a. Uh, I mean, I'm it's a great film. And I'm I'm excited to see what they do. I'm glad, but kind of disappointed they didn't go for the really obvious cheesy title. Like it still follows, or it follows again. Yeah, or it is uh, following. It, yeah, that would be. <laughs> That would be the the style, wouldn't it? But real, I know real Dwight Schrute, it is your birthday vibes. I <laughs> that, actually, I sent that to someone this week. I feel like a total office fake office fan because I always send that to anyone who's got a birthday, and I have no idea. I've never even seen that episode. I'm sure it's hilarious. Uh, it is. It's really good. Um, 
it's in i would say that it they, that episode is in like their peak of being good is it's in mm-hmm. that, that era mm-hmm. Um, but I have lots of opinion, lots of opinions about The Office because I've seen it so many goddamn times. Uh, <laughs> I say that like I'm angry, but I'm not. I love that show, and like it's like it's like a warm blanket. That's why we keep rewatching it in our house. It's so easy to put on and just enjoy. Who's your Brad Pitt casting replacement for The Office? Uh, Brad Pitt could not replace anyone in The Office. Oh, you could do the guy from The Hangover pretty well. What's his name? Ed. Ed Helms. Ed's, uh... Ed Holmes, he could do Ed Holmes that part. He probably could, but here's here's my opinion about that character. So that character's name is Andy, and he's he's written for a large swath of it to be this sort of like lovable idiot, mm-hmm. but he's actually a huge asshole the whole time, <laughs> uh, and it gets <laughs> definitely gets it's definitely worse at the very beginning of his appearances, which is about season three and and the very end, like seasons eight and particularly a season nine. But he's a huge asshole, and I don't really like him most for most in most of the time. He's either he's either an idiot or an asshole, and there's no like balance between those two things. I think he's one of but, their weakest characters. Oh, so you don't like him? You you'd actually you'd rather he wasn't in the episodes? I think if they could find a balance between him being an idiot or a jerk, uh, mm-hmm. it would be better. I think one of the things that the the original office does legitimately better. So I do think the American office is, is better, like just for clarity's sake. Um, mm-hmm. But I think one of the things that the British office does better is that it has a more each 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 character is more well defined. The office one, the off American office has a couple of characters who uh, their characterization changes drastically from time from time to time, like season to season. And I think it's a little bit weaker in that regard, but ultimately I do think it's a better show. Interesting. So, yeah. That's a very but, you know, also, I think once you get past the first season, it, it becomes increasingly difficult to compare them because it's uh, it riff if it riffs off in its own direction in season two successfully i might add i think for the style of north north american humor i think it was a very good idea to stop trying to be british i mean my do. favorite my favorite like behind the scenes thing about that show is that the first season is not very good because it's basically a shot for shot remake almost mm-hmm. of the first season of the british office and one of the choices that the showrunners made behind the scenes in between seasons one and two was just that everyone needs to be 10% nicer to Michael. (laughs) And I think that that really like informs the rest of the show, like in that, and he stops being such a piece of shit and turns into a sort of more bumbling Homer Simpson, lovable idiot type character. Mm. And I think that it works a lot better. I think that, yeah, I think that the British office is very successful, but there's only so far you can go with a horrible misanthrope as your main character. I mean, that's why we only had two seasons, two very short seasons of The Office. And and that was the perfect length for David Brent and that hellhole that unfortunately most of us have worked in. But no, it was the, the, the evolution from season one to two of The Office, I think is a perfect example of why you need a writing team, a good writing team who can look at something and pick apart very specifically what is working and what needs to be adjusted and have that freedom and creative vision to do that because it, it works like gangbusters, even though it becomes its own, a different show. It's a very, very good show. 
Yeah, and it's also very clearly a very collaborative show, and lots of people have come out of it, like BJ Novak and Mindy Kaling, who are supporting players through the entire run of the show, um, are also heavily involved in the production and writing. Yeah. Uh, lots of them directed episodes, and a lot of the other behind-the-scenes people, like, people don't really realize that Paul Feig, who's, you know, a big-deal movie director mm. now, like, did cut his teeth directing stuff like the office and 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 it's edited to an it like perfection an inch of its life there's something we're going to talk about later today when you've got improvised uh, improv comedy troupe you need an editing team who know exactly when to end that joke and move on and what's really what i find really interesting is that for whatever reason my instagram is flooded with uh, accounts with like um, office outtakes and extended scenes and things and they're all really really flabby and they're all like, oh, I understand this is an excellent education as to why editing is important. Yeah. And with that style of humor, you've got to be absolutely on top of the lines at work and the things that have ended and when you need to move on. And The Office does that brilliantly, I think. Yeah, the other interesting thing, and I don't remember where I heard this. I heard it a number of years ago. But another really interesting thing, I think, is that although they were very on the ball in terms of editing and, and keeping things very tight. They also considered all of that stuff. Like any, if it was a scene that ran long and they cut part of it, they still considered the cut part of it to be like canon for the characters to like work with. So oh. even if there's something that we didn't see, they considered it just being like the, the people, the characters exterior lives from the show. I thought that was a really interesting mm -hmm. choice as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I could do a whole podcast about The Office. Like an episode. <laughs> we could do an episode by episode of the podcast, uh, a podcast about The Office, if you wanted to. Um, sure. I would be, I would be down for that. Um, yeah. What I mean, yeah, we definitely have to get your wife in on that then. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, so here's a question. So I kept, I've been keeping these lists. So I saw what five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five, twenty-eight new things in October. Um, 28 things for the first time in, in October. Um, Ow. <laughs> oh, I don't have children. <laughs> oh my God. What, um, what was the, what was the best new thing? Oh, you saw in October, whether we talked about it or not. Like film. Yeah. Or TV uh, or whatever. Just what's a great thing uh, for the first time. It doesn't uh, have to be new, new, just new to you. In October. Oh, um, so I don't watch that much TV. I tend to watch whatever my wife puts on. So I was entirely surprised at how good the David Beckham documentary is on Netflix. Mm. And I don't I know if you've it. seen it yet. So I've been playing a lot of Factorio on my Switch. So when the kids go to bed, I'm like, to my wife, put whatever you want on. I'm going to sit next to you and play this. I'm going to snuggle it and you put whatever you want. I can do both. And so she, she, um, she, as you probably well know, she has a, she likes David Beckham a lot, like a lot, a lot. And she's very excited about this documentary, but I, I don't really like documentaries. I, they don't really do much for me. I don't like speaking heads. I don't like nostalgia documentaries where people talk about things from the nineties. I, I really dislike most documentaries really um and i also don't really have uh the, the kind of focus or interest to watch four hour-long episodes about david beckham but it's brilliantly made it's a really good documentary it does have talking heads but it, everything is shot really interestingly the uh you also hear the voices of the the filmmakers too and 
they have managed to get tons of really interesting people, like very famous through the ages people, and are asking them really interesting talking points and have edited together brilliantly. And it goes through so many things I kind of forgotten about being a much younger when David Beckham was in his ascendancy and when he got sent off and in the World Cups and, and when he he's like was the best player on the planet for a long time. And uh, hearing him talk about that and hearing his very human approach to telling a story about himself, because he's never, he's never been a media boy. Like he, one of the, the, um, one of the things about Beckham when he was very, very famous is that he didn't really have that media training to speak like a superstar. He's always just been a kid and he still speaks from his heart and he speaks very openly and honestly. And I, and I really vibed with that. And I watched, all four episodes of that and it was fantastic it was really good really worthwhile so recommend i would it. say oh. i would say part of david beckham's problem in terms of maybe being a media presence is just that he doesn't have the voice for it because it's about two octaves <laughs> higher than you expect it to be at any given point so one of the great joys in the universe is that it's always in balance and so you've yeah. got a man who looks like a Greek god who stopped my wife mid-sentence on our honeymoon in San Francisco <laughs> because the Cheesecake Factory had a, a roof-to-ground um, Calvin Klein advert with David Beckham in his underwear, uh, and she stopped mid-sentence with this guttural noise that really hasn't changed over thousands of years of evolution. And um, she... Uh, she gave birth to my second kid the morning after watching a David Beckham documentary. So I think he's uh, he's been he's been very important in our lives. Um, and uh, uh, so yes, the universe is in balance because he looks like a god and sounds like a schoolboy. So yeah, he's proof for sure. Yeah, he's uh, he's an interesting case, and I'm glad I did get to see him play one time when he was playing. Admittedly, when he was playing for the Galaxy, the LA Galaxy, which he also I think still co-owns. Mm-hmm. When they came to town to play the Whitecaps, um, but I'm glad I got mm-hmm. to see him play because even though he was clearly, you know, maybe slightly past his prime, he was still running circles around, mm-hmm. as I imagine he still does today, running yes. circles around most people. Absolutely. Like I'm not trying to make any implications about the skill level or quality level of MLS. I think, but I'm saying that like David really Beckham can. is just that good. Like he 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 like best best in the world for for vision and also like placing a ball on mm-hmm. a, a specific point in the net like i've never seen anyone else take free kicks like him yeah incredible yep uh well for me um of the all the things i watched i want to say that like the one that's maybe surprised me the most and i don't know why it shouldn't but i watched john carpenter's 1994 film in the mouth of madness and that is a really oh. great film uh mm-hmm. with a really wonderful sam neil same time frame as like jurassic park um mm-hmm. and like super meta commentary that feels maybe more relevant today than it did in 1994 um which yeah. i always sort of appreciate i don't know if you've seen this movie i but... have not no yeah so basically there's a, a horror writer named sutter kane who has disappeared mm-hmm. and the world is going fucking crazy and he's disappeared and Sam Neill plays an insurance adjuster, uh, investigator called John Trent, 
who's sent to like find Sutter Kane. And what he realizes is that over through the course of the movie, he goes to this town where the Sutter Kane supposedly is, but the town isn't a real town. It's the town that Sutter Kane writes about in his books. And huh. it, it comes out that like the things that Sutter Kane puts in his books become real. Um, this is very, very Stephen King of him. Yeah. And it's, I won't spoil exactly how or why, but let me just say that like the, the reasons why and the explanations thereof right down to the very last, the, the last scene is very famous. It's a disheveled Sam Neill in a, in a cinema laughing at the screen. But the reason why he's laughing is so perfect. Um, and, and the way the whole thing plays out and what it's trying to say about the world is so and, interesting. And I, and again, maybe more relevant than it was in 1994. And I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it, so I'm not going to, but you should definitely go, you should definitely find this movie and watch it. It was on the Criterion channel. Uh, when I watched it, I'm sure it's available other places, uh, and you should, hmm. you should seek it out. Wicked, yeah, I will. I will add that to the list too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of things on your list this so far. Yes, so. there really is. Yeah, Master and Commander being at the top of it for for God, ten years now, maybe. Yeah, although having recently discovered on our bonus episode that you've never seen Casablanca, maybe, <laughs> come on, maybe, man, maybe Master and Commander could be uh... number two. For the time being, I'm going to be ejected from 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 film committees over my fake film status by not watching, not having seen Casablanca or Seven Samurai or countless I mean, other big movies. Not if you watch them <laughs> <laughs> quickly. <laughs> oh. Remember, I watch them all at the same time. There's bound to be some mush, mushroom related event where you put on two movies at the same time and they synchronize. Like you could do with uh, Pink Floyd we'll just, and the Wisdom of Oz. Let's get you an attachment for your uh, computer chair, for your desk chair that like reaches around the front and holds your eyeballs open. You know, <laughs> um, Clockwork Orange I seen, style. I haven't seen Clockwork Orange either, but okay. <laughs> I mean, that's not great, but it's less of a problem. Than I don't want to watch. I just don't want to watch Clockwork Orange. I know what it's about. I know too much about it. I just... We have a, fr- a very good friend of ours has a chart of his remaining weeks on Earth, and he uses that to determine if he watches a film or not, because he's worked out realistically how many more films he can watch in his life, and does he want, want this film to be one of those that finite number, which I think is terrifying, but I'm uh, I kind of, I'm more, more passively, like, I want to watch movies to feel like nice things, I don't want to watch uh, Kubrick's film about horrific gang rape and uh, and uh, my uh, mind control and all kinds of things. Uh, yeah, I mean, I get that. I sort of, I really respect that list he has uh, in that I res- I like that it uh, it assigns value to the the content that he the capital C yeah. content that he is consuming. Uh, mm-hmm. In a way that, uh, similarly, this is why a number of years ago, you know, when I was young and broke, I used to pirate stuff all the time. And at a certain point, I stopped. And the reason I stopped was that having everything available for free made it feel less impactful. Uh, Having to make choices about what I wanted to see in terms of my time and and resources definitely made, uh, it gave weight to the stuff I was watching. Uh, in a way that I didn't didn't actually really expect. Um, yeah, I mean, I expected it, but not to the level that it did. So that's why I don't generally pirate stuff anymore. 
I have the exact same problem with Xbox Game Pass, and I did on PS Plus before I let it lapse. And I, uh, my Game Pass runs out in April, and I'm going to let that lapse because none of those games on there feel have any intrinsic value to me because they're just I can try ten minutes and just let it go. And even there's a game that's just come out called Jusant, which is fantastic. But I think I would love it more if I bought it because it would have a bit more of a something I've chosen to spend my money on, if that makes stupid sense. But Game Pass is such a, a, a library of stuff and you don't have to, you just pay an amount and you can do as much or as little as you want, which is kind of my dream when I was young. And it turns out it's not what I want at all. But hey, that's I, a very different conversation. It's interesting, actually. And I think... It's going to, this might come up next week because one of the movies we're going to talk about next week is a Netflix release, which you will have seen um, on Netflix, but I had the opportunity to see in a cinema. And mm-hmm. I feel like, as is the case with a prior Netflix release, uh, the, the, maybe, maybe you've heard of it called The Irishman. Um, mm-hmm. I liked a lot more than a lot of people I know. And I think it had a lot to do with the way I saw it, which was in a cinema. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like, not that, I mean, no, I'm just going to say that I feel like being on, being on Netflix does devalue film mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think it does, it, it does that less to TV shows, but it, it does do mm-hmm. it to, to some extent to both of them. Uh, I think it devalues them somewhat. Yeah. That's a longer discussion with more nuance that I'm willing to put in right now. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so on that bombshell, let's move on and talk about some <laughs> current movies. Um, uh, we're going to talk about two movies as we usually do today Um, uh, before we do just the quick housekeeping version of of the spiel in that if you like the show if you like our discussions if you like all the stuff that we do you can support us uh, with a like a subscribe uh, a review a share um, or Patreon subscription all these things are available to you and all of them are in the show notes we are on basically every major platform uh, podcasting platform and Patreon and Kofi and any of those things you want to do would be very well received and we'd be very grateful. Um, and if you want to find us, there's too many socials today, so you can find us uh, in the show notes. You'll find my homepage and Simon's homepage and you can follow us via those things. Yes, you can. Anyway, uh, let's move on. We're going to talk about two movies, uh, both of which are Disney movies technically this week. Um, and we're going to talk about the one I'm going to guess, I'm just going to guess right now, we haven't talked at length about either of them ahead of time, but I'm going to guess that the first one we're going to talk about is the one that we both liked better. I think that's fair to say yes. But we're going to talk about it first uh, because it's older, and that movie is A Haunting in Venice, which is the latest of the Kenneth Branagh Hercule Poirot mystery films, which I quite like. I've liked all of them. I know I'm I don't know if I'm in the minority exactly, but I know they are. A lot of people view them as being fairly uneven. Um, but this one sees a retired Hercule Poirot in post-war Venice, post-World War II Venice, who is living a quiet life, who's pulled into a case. He's taken to a Halloween party, and at that party, uh, murder most foul occurs, and he is left to solve the case. It is a Locked house with a cast of thousands, um, all of whom are at least moderately famous, including recent Academy Award winner Michelle Yeoh, um, Kelly Riley, Jamie Dornan, uh, Tina Fey. Tina Fey. 
uh, is probably the most important one because uh, she is pretty great. Um, and I don't know what to say, man. Like, I really like this movie. Um, I didn't like it as much as Murder on the Orient Express, but I think I might be biased there because that is pretty much my favorite Agatha Christie story. Um, and it's also maybe not fair to Death on the Nile because Death on the Nile has a real problem with problematic people who are super distracting oh, because they're yeah. in the movie. There's like four of them. Yeah. There's at least three, but I think four of them in that movie who are just turned out to be <laughs> garbage human beings. Yeah. And it's very distracting. Um, but in A Haunting in Venice, uh, it takes place in this beautiful palazzo. Um, basically, everyone in it is good, not the least of which is Tina Fey, who sounds like, who's putting on this mid-Atlantic accent that sounds like it should just be her natural accent. Oh, like, my I, God. I, I don't know how to explain it, but, like, if you hear Tina Fey speaking with a mid-Atlantic accent, you would be then you'd be remiss for thinking she was the only human alive that that was her natural accent, ever. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, it fits her so, so, so well. And she's also just actually quite good in the movie as well. Like, not just her accent, but she is really good as this friend who drags him into, drags Poro into the situation and gets him caught up in the mystery. And is she involved or isn't she? Um and, uh, I mean, it's hard to talk about. I don't want to spoil the mystery, even though this film is now on Disney Plus here in Canada and just available to watch. Uh, uh, it is a... It, it is... The, the Haunting of Venice is not a title, I don't think, of an actual Christie story, but it is an adaptation of a Christie... I think two different Christie stories. Oh, really? And, <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, one's called The Halloween Party, and the other one, oh. I can't remember what the... I think it actually is just a Halloween party, is what it's called. The Halloween party. Right. Uh, which makes sense, because it takes place during a Halloween party. Um, but it also makes a lot of interesting choices. The cinematography is is really interesting and creative. There's a whole middle stretch of this film where Poirot is maybe being haunted. And so the camera angle choices and lens choices are all super interesting and really heighten what he's going through and why he's going through it. Um and I don't know, man, I just love these films where it's a cast of a, like a constellation of stars talking in fun accents, solving a mystery. Uh, it's a genre that I'm into. Uh, and I think that I hope, I know that Kenneth Brothers Poirot is a little bit over the top, but I kind of love that about him. And if anything, I was disappointed that the mustache was maybe dialed back a little bit in this one and couldn't be twirled <laughs> quite so effectively. Um I don't know. I'm just, I feel like I'm just rambling at this point. What did you think of A Haunting in Venice? Sam? So, okay. I didn't... Uh, I have not enjoyed his Agatha Christie movies. I'm not sure Kenneth Branagh is a very good director. Uh, or, or Actually, I should clarify that. I don't think he's a very consistent director. But one thing he does is his uh, cinematography, his visuals of his direction are always exceptional even with something like Thor, which he's completely the wrong director for Thor, in my opinion. Um, and uh, his Hamlet, which is not my favourite depiction of Hamlet as a character, but is absolutely luscious to look at. It's just gorgeous. And 
the the previous two movies i've only watched part of both of them because i bounced off them pretty hard but they both looked beautiful were designed beautifully so i think he's a very very visually interesting director the the problem with branner is that it, he's quite he can be quite hammy sometimes uh, like a little a little over the top generally except sometimes he he really isn't like if you look at him in in tenet where he's very very underplayed he can do subtle he can do low grade but his his hamminess sometimes really comes out in his direction as well so i wasn't expecting to like this at all and honestly i thought it was pretty great i actually really really liked it a lot um i was fascinated by his uh, offset framing of the characters when they were a shot reverse shot which you get so used to the 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 faces sort of being three quarters of the way across three quarters of the way up and he um he did, as you mentioned, a number of very, very strange angles and almost fisheye lenses to to add lots and lots and lots of shadow to the background and lots of dead space to uh, around the faces. And also the faces, the front of the faces, really, really close to the edge of the frame. So the back of the mm-hmm. head had lots of space behind them. And um, for the majority of the film everything is shot just off a little bit intentionally. And I thought that was uh, honestly a masterpiece of cinematography I, and his, his vision for that to capture the, the feeling that something is off in that house. He, he's clearly thought, well, how can I do that through filmmaking as well? How can I capture that through filmmaking? And so he's actually used our expectations of watching films and then manipulated them to make things feel a bit off until it all resolves at the end. I thought that was amazing, actually. And the design is amazing. And um, it's quite a simple, uh, as murder mysteries go, it was quite straightforward and quite simple. Like you didn't have the glass onion layers or or, uh, the more modern um, whodunits are often a, a bit more layered and a bit more complex. It was quite, when he explained, when he got it and he explained exactly what was going on, it kind of all fit together really, really well, which is mm-hmm. quite satisfying. Satisfying as an audience, actually, because sometimes I really hate this feeling that we had no chance of working out what was going on because there's so much we didn't know, which can happen in um, in Ryan Johnson's Who Done It, but I, it was it was really logical how it all fit together and very, very satisfying in the reveal. But he's just having a great time in this film, and um, there's one moment. Because the whole thing is that he he's, for whatever reason, I haven't seen the last one, for whatever reason, he's kind of rejected his his uh, his famous um, reputation as being this crime solver. Um, and his friend, played by Tina Fey, an, an author called Ariadne Oliver, is kind of, who who's written about him or, or about his exploits, is trying to encourage him to get back on the horse. And saying, you know, she keeps seeing the old Hercule Poirot come back. And there's one point where he locks all the doors uh, after the first dead person is discovered. He locks all the doors. He keeps everyone trapped in this beautiful Italian structure. And he says, tell the police Hercule Poirot is on the case. And he doesn't say it normally. He doesn't say, tell tell the police Hercule Poirot is on the case, as David Suchet would have done. And David Suchet is probably the most famous Poirot, I'd say. But he Certainly, just... Yeah. He uh, he just really just 
delivers that delivery and I really enjoyed it. I like I really liked how he um uh uh there was some of his sort of PTSD for this version of Poirot, I don't know if it's in the books, but has lots of wartime PTSD, which explains the big moustache through scarring. And there were, that was a theme in this, and I thought that was done really, really well. Um, everyone was shot brilliantly, and the cast did really well, I thought. I thought Michelle Yeoh was good. Tina Fey, I want to speak in that. That accent, which was developed for radio presentation transatlantic radio presentation so i'm not even sure if there's a region in america that actually speaks like that no it's a constructed really accent it, I uh, really, it would be accents. lovely if right it would be lovely if everyone just spoke like that because it is amazing and she is amazing in this and yeah it maybe lost a, a bit of momentum towards the end i think but i really really enjoyed it surprised how much i enjoyed it and I found it very satisfying to watch as well. And kind of lovely. At the end, it, it finds a really nice last 10 minutes, which kind of gives everyone a bit of personal resolution. And I thought it was just quite sweet at the end, which I wasn't expecting. So, yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. I thought it was great. Yeah. I think it's I think it's been really interesting to watch the varied responses to this one because um, I could not, like, of all the people I know who've seen it, I could, the only person I could reliably predict their response was going to be my wife because I, she doesn't really like these films and she doesn't really like Kenneth Branagh's version of Poirot and she doesn't really like his direction like at all. Mm-hmm. Um, which is fine. But like people who I expect to like it have been like, no, it's terrible. And people who I've expected to dislike it have been like, no, this one's the best one he's made. <laughs> and it's, just, <laughs> it's like, it's really interesting. I think technically speaking, it is easily the best one that he's made it's the best looking one yeah it's the best i think it's the best directed one yeah everything you're saying about the cinematography choices i think this film makes me wish he would maybe just do a like horror movie because he's so good Mm. at like Mm. making you want to your eyes to drift to the background with negative space and shadow to see things that aren't there and i feel like that is an underrated talent as a filmmaker definitely um I don't think you're wrong in terms of him being a bit hammy. The word I usually use to describe it is that it's very, his, his Poirot is very stagey. He's playing for the cheap seats. It's big. It's mm-hmm. always big. It's always kind of louder than it needs to be. Mm-hmm. But I really like that about it. <laughs> I really like that he's going for broke in every scene. I watch a lot of classic films and I'm very, I'm much more used to that sort of classic stagey style of acting than, many people that i know um but i i do legitimately love that it feels like a throwback to that style of acting and filmmaking um this character in particular um but also like hercule poirot is not just a good detective he's a goddamn superhero in these movies like he is shot and portrayed as a superhero as having superhuman abilities compared to the average man or woman and um I think it's really interesting to to see that blend of like old school stagey acting and like very contemporary, like we should be in awe of this person because he's a superhero. <laughs> um, mm. It's an interesting meld of two things. I think, again, I think for me, I think Orient Express is probably still my favorite of the three, but I like all three of them. Um, and 
again, that's probably just bias because, again, Orient Express is one of, if not my favorite, Agatha Christie story. Right. Um, but it's again, totally. Like, say, like, again, like, I think that maybe, I think that that one is also beautifully shot. I think that one has a lot of really, I think that one makes a really good use of the train environment, the way that the, the camera moves through the train, especially if there's a couple of really early, really long takes. Um, that's the one thing I would say this one was maybe missing. There was a, in, in Orient Express and Nile, there's a couple of really well executed, super long takes. And this one doesn't not have long takes, but there wasn't like anyone where I was like, holy shit, like how did this must have taken so much? This one didn't have that, but it made up for it by having much more, generally speaking, much more interesting cinematography and lighting choices and, uh, and tonal choices as well. Yeah. So, sorry, you were going to very, very, yeah, no, I find it very interesting that each of these feels like, especially this one feels a very uh, intentional shift in style. Like the the Nile, I thought was was shot pretty badly actually, and and then Orient Express, what I've seen of it, had a much more classic film, not noir, but kind of a classic approach. And this is definitely, as you say, it's a much more of a horror movie approach. And and he clearly knows this stuff. Like he's been around a long time. He's been involved in a lot of different things. So he clearly knows how to create a certain ambiance. And uh, and maybe maybe this is his successful one. Another one in this style would be great. But then again, maybe just keep letting him make what he wants. Like if if one out of every three is gonna be this good, then just keep making them. They can't be that expensive to make. No, I mean by, comparatively. By today's standards, I think sixty million is a, a pretty modest budget, and yeah, it's, and he's uh, got the contacts. He's got the contact, and also he's Kenneth Branagh. Like, yeah, if he made one of these, like, if every like, I don't want to like dictate the cadence of this man's work or anything, but like, if he did like, you know, um, if he did like a tenant in a Belfast for every one of these, <laughs> I would be a happy person. You know, like if he just like went out, if he just, I just want him to keep making them. That's all I'm saying. I want him to keep making yeah. Agatha Christie stories um, because yeah. I think they're really interesting. And I think they're, they're all classics for a reason. And I think that yeah. the, I also just think that this style of filmmaking is one that we just don't get anymore. And I really appreciate it. Right. Like you don't really get the, it's like this and Ryan Johnson are the only two guys who are doing the like put a bunch of people in a room and have one of them die and then have everyone else like act for the cheap seats like and i say that like that can be a complaint but i don't say it as a complaint i really i really like that style of acting i really like everyone in this film and mm. i like the big dramatic reveals and i love how flamboyant this version of poirot is i i actually would say that david Suchet played him for like 25 years or whatever is definitely the most famous Poirot, but I think I like this version better. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, David Suchet would... David Suchet's Poirot would be like, well, you know, I am the best detective. Whereas yeah. Kenneth Branagh's version is like, I am Hercule Poirot, and I am probably yeah. the best detective in the entire world. <laughs> just, I, think, I don't I know why he's German you... in my accent and not French, but... Yeah, you know, I, 
Belgian? <laughs> He's Belgian in the stories, yeah. Um, so I think it's an interesting point because you've got Suchet acting for BBC serial serialized TV and you've got Branagh acting for movies, and I think that's a very uh, important distinction. And I certainly enjoy the, the Branagh's extra bit of life. I found Suchet Poirot a little bit uh, stayed, a bit, bit boring. But um, and then Branagh's never boring, <laughs> yeah. good or bad. He's never ever boring. So if it lands, it really lands. I mean, I'm also the guy who thinks that like, what's the name of the you? You're reading, you've read all the Harry Potter film uh, books and to your kids, and you've seen all the movies way more recently than I have because I haven't mm-hmm. seen them since they were new. But doesn't he play the like dark arts professor who turns out to be a total fraud? And he's like this yeah. really flamboyant over the and like I also love that you know I love yeah. he's oh, like he's the right. he's oh, the, perfect he's the he's the best at that kind he's one of the best at that kind of character and Poirot is that kind of character except he's yeah. not actually a fraud you know he's, yeah, he's really is, he's the real deal yeah media superstar who is hammy and over the top and uh, turns out to be a fraud is like perfect perfect brother but that's I mean he's very very good at that but. Like going back to Tennant as well, and there's another movie he um, so uh, Dunkirk as well. He's mm-hmm. he's really like he has the range. I think he just chooses to be hammy, and you've got to respect that at some point. Yeah. That's his decision at certain points. Although there is a really lovely moment at the beginning of A Haunting in Venice that is a throwback. It's a callback to um, Orient Express where he's being served breakfast and it's two eggs and they're different sizes. And there's a whole thing at the beginning of Orient Express where we keep bringing him two eggs and he keeps measuring them. And when they're not exactly the same, he's like, send them back. Um, <laughs> and in this one, they give him two eggs that literally couldn't be more different. And there's this look on his face when they're in front of him that is like, no, I have chosen this. You know, I have, <laughs> I, I, I need to move on. I'm, you know, like, and I think there's a number of moments in this film like that where you can tell he's really, his, like, internal uh, character work is super impressive. So I think think that we're going to remember the big flamboyant moments, but this film has the smaller ones, too. Like, it really does showcase his range. Absolutely. That's a very good summary, completely. Yeah. So how many stars? We could just carry on talking about this movie, can't we? I think we both really liked it. But how much did you like it in the star value? Uh, Quantify so, your level arts. So for me, having only seen it the one time, for now I'm going to give it three stars. Um, I would also say that um, I would be willing to bet when I watch it again, because I definitely will, I bet it'll go up to four for me. I have... I've been ping-ponging back between three and four stars since I finished watching it. I kind of wish the end had been a bit tighter. You know, just it kind of ran out of steam a little bit. But, oh, screw it. Four stars. It's technically fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Four stars. I would say also, like, the the last scene where he's, like, got his mojo back, and that's exemplified by him, like, interacting with this person he's been brushing off. Um, oh, like I love yeah, that no, last no. scene as well. Like, like yes, uh, yes, very much. so, yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the scene, the scene from the um, I don't want to actually. I don't want to talk about it. But the the last 
bit where he kind of leaves the house is lovely. It's the I I feel like the the final moment where everything comes together for him. That big final monologue kind of didn't. I think that could have been a bit more bit more pointed it's a very difficult thing to film a monologue though with a crew of uh, with a cast of people just looking at you so uh i don't know but yeah i would also say that you know of the three mysteries that he's solved so far um this one is by far the most straightforward but also to go to go back to a point you made before and that like it does all logically fit together Mm -hmm. however it's also the first of the three that doesn't necessarily give you everything you need to solve it ahead of time. Like, mm-hmm. like Orient Express, if you pay attention to the things that people are saying, you can you can sort of put together like what's going on ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Maybe not mm-hmm. entirely, but you can sort of get that like it's not what you think it is. And this one hinges on a piece of information that I just like it hinges on a piece of horticultural knowledge that I just don't have. And this yeah. is the first one of the three that, like, I would say uh, that does that. And once he explains it, you're like, aha, this is a piece of context I didn't have. Um, and I'm I'm never one to be like, I want to figure it out first, but I do want to be able to figure it out. <laughs> and I would say that that one piece of knowledge maybe is what drops it down for me at this point. Um, oh, interesting point. Right, I see. Yeah. But But again, like... Now that I have that piece of knowledge, I'm sure I'll watch this again in like a month's time or early next year and be like, actually, this is great. <laughs> this is definitely four stars the second time through, you know? Yeah, um, sure. In the same way that like, I think there's, it's interesting because there's pieces of knowledge like that in Death of the Nile, Death on the Nile, that I definitely just already have that I'm sure other people just don't. Um, like the way that, you know, lipstick decays in water and stuff. Maybe I just picked up from other mystery stories. Right, um, right. Uh, that too. I mean, yeah, Death on the Nile is a tough one. We could do a whole podcast about that. But anyway, the point is that like it's 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 good, and I expect to like it more each time mm-hmm. I watch it. In the same way that I have very much liked uh, Orient Express more each time I have watched it. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I should do that. Okay. Well, well, we should move on from talking about this lovely film. We should definitely move on as we're going to definitely go over time. So we are going to talk about a new movie that just came out on Disney Plus this weekend. And since I talked about Death or Hunting in Venice, why don't you give us the lowdown? Why don't you give us the lowdown on the new Uh, Disney Plus release, Quiz Lady? Well, uh, Aquafina plays Anne. Um, (laughs) Okay. And uh, she is. Um, I had to mute myself because I was laughing so hard it made me cough. She's like an accountant or something, and um, she she has uh, she's not got the most interesting life, but she gets a lot of love from two things: her dog, and uh, every night she watches a quiz show hosted by Will Ferrell, and, and she watches it as an escape when she's young. We see some flashbacks. Um, with her and her older sister and her parents are arguing and she sees it, it's her escape and she's watched it every night of her life from young to now and and this this is the kind of the rather old-fashioned quiz show that's uh, one of those shows that's been going for years and years and years and years 
and Matt made a point that Will Ferrell is clearly the uh, the the, and then he said a name which I can't tell you because I don't remember, but he will tell you, and it's that kind of guy. He's just yeah, he's. It's interesting. The one he's thing I'll say about this film before we get into actually talking about it is that I'm legitimately shocked that it's not just, and I get it's because he's Alex Trebek has passed away, but it's kind of shocking That's it's not right. just Jeopardy. Yes. Um, maybe they could for rights reasons, but it is that kind of all, Will Ferrell's lovely in this actually as this Alex Trebek kind of presenter. Uh is completely obsessed with the show and because she's watched it every night of her life, she has this incredible knowledge of general uh facts, and so it shows her being able to list out the answers to all these questions, um, often beating the most of the contestants apart from uh, this one guy that she really hates is this like repeated winner played brilliantly by Jason Schwartzman, who is just having the time of his life in this role. Um, she's got an older sister who uh, who is kind of flaky and wants to be in lots of different things. Uh, and um, they're very, very different. And through a hilarious set of circumstances involving their mother, they come together and they find themselves in need of money. And so uh, Sandra Oh, who I think is, brilliant in this film and, and i've never seen it act like this as a really kind of ditzy flaky actress wannabe uses her social powers to get her very socially awkward sister in on this quiz and um you can probably guess the the entirety of the rest of this film from that synopsis like it, it exactly what you think is going to happen happens in this film um I mean, let me just and, cut in and say that, like, you can't probably guess. You can, yes. you like, you have seen this movie before. And it, uh, it's a comedy. And imagine if it had been written by someone who knew, to, who knew how to write comedy. Just imagine that. That's my take on this film. Uh, it's the, the, uh, I love the cast, but the, the, uh, the, the, the jokes don't land for me. The comedy doesn't work. You know, we talked at the top of this episode about the importance of editing in and out of improv comedy and sometimes things like The Office and uh, uh, Bottoms, which we talked about last week, brilliantly gets it right. This gets it very wrong. And um, I just left me at the end of this movie when it finished, when exactly what I knew would happen happened. I was just kind of glad it was over because it was kind of like pulling teeth especially when um, you've got a, a brief appearance by Tony Hale, but Tony Hale, who is brilliant at creating comedy and a master at knowing when to let the joke go. Or, I, see, um, I don't know. This movie didn't land at all for me. I was kind of disappointed by it because I really wanted to see it, and I really liked the two leads. In fact, I liked everyone. I thought everyone was great, and it was just really uninspired. It wasn't written well. It was kind of overbearing when it tried to be funny. There's a couple of really great lines that kind of makes you realize how it could have been great all the way through. It just needed a punch-up pass on the script, and it needed someone editing in and out of the jokes far more aggressively. Yeah, I'm going to go in a slightly different direction and say that, like, I think the... I mean, I don't know how tightly scripted this film was but it definitely feels like it to me and i have exactly no inside information on this but it feels very much like other films 
from that sort of like Paul Feig, um, Melissa McCarthy type group of people who do a ton of improv, like just a, a ton of onset improv. And Will Ferrell's whole group is definitely guilty of this as well. And they've had, I would say, more successes than failures, but they've definitely had their failures, right? Mm -hmm. um, like there's a reason there's a whole other cut. There's a whole other version of Anchorman where literally every joke is different because they had so much improv B-roll. They made a whole sequence. Almost, like, yeah. Like the, that. The straight to DVD, um, I forgot what it was called, but they released a feature length just with the offcuts of Anchorman. Oh yeah, that's what I'm talking about. And that, and like, there's three cuts of Anchorman, one of which is a drama, which is interesting. And not maybe not a drama, but definitely like a whole other, a whole different movie with a whole different narrative. Um, what I'm trying to say is that like, if you're gonna do onset improv, you kind of got to find it and then do it right. Like, I think a really great example of a, a great way to do improv is actually, I'm sure you've probably seen the Lemony Snicket movie that Jim Carrey did. Oh gosh, maybe I think so. Um, yeah. So, for that movie, he improved a lot in rehearsals, <laughs> mm. and then they used the best stuff to make the movie. Mm. And I think in the case of something like Anchorman, where you have like four guys at the literal top of their game, and then someone who says, "Okay, these are the best jokes," mm. and I feel like this movie just falls into that trap of something like, say. I know a lot of people love this movie, but Jim Carrey's uh, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, which is mm. they just let him run wild with no editing, and it just feels flabby and lazy. Mm. And, and so I will go. I'll go so far as to say I think I liked it more than you. I did laugh a number of times at a number of the lines, and but ultimately for me, the reason that I think I like it more isn't that it's funny. It's that the heartfelt stuff, like the clear underdog winning at the thing she's good at part of the story that you have definitely seen a million times before i thought was really well executed and there's one scene in particular where like on the quiz show they have to play charades and the two sisters play charades i, I found that really kind of touching <laughs> um yeah. and then will ferrell's character being not being totally over the top being very understated and very sweet throughout even when he's not directly involved in the narrative um i found so basically what i'm saying is that like the last 20 minutes kind of saved it like the last 20 30 minutes kind of saved it for me um but only so far as that i think it's fine that's fine it's totally fine there's definitely a million worse things on disney plus alone you could put on uh than this if you were gonna try to find something to watch on like a wednesday night um but you're right, it's not particularly good. It's just also not bad. It's fine. It's kind of, it's kind of falls in that alternate death knell of films in that it is totally fine. You know, mm. the, the worst place for a film to land is yeah, to be not bad, but not good. Like, to be just un, uninteresting. Um, I, I, I think it stings a little extra here because I think there was a lot of potential here for it to be really, really, really good. Like it's it's not that far away from being excellent. I think there's an extra storyline in it that is completely unnecessary that they should have torn out completely, and it would have been a better film just to be about the lady going to the quiz. I don't think it needed the extra motivation in there. Um, I love the scene uh, where um, Annie, oh Anne, sorry, meets uh, Will Ferrell, sort of just as there about to do the show in his 
hall of bow ties. And yeah, that uh, scene alone, I think, really lovely. I thought it's great. Yeah. So my point here is that I don't think it's a particularly inspired film, but I think that there's a few scenes like that one that make it worth watching. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that what he says to her in that scene, and I don't really want to spoil it, but what he says to her about, you know, why are you here, and think about think about the reasons why you're here, um, and about like going through the experience with a little more in like mindfulness uh, mm-hmm. about the experience, I think is really interesting and important and lovely. And I think that those scenes make the film worth watching. Um, but I will never, probably never watch it again. I, and yeah, it's, you know, right? Like it's yeah, that's got a figure somewhere. It's totally fine. It's it's adequate. Uh, yeah, it's adequate. Adequate to the task. That's that's my review. Yeah, I've I've seen too many good comedies recently for, for me to give this a, as a pass. Hmm. I've seen uh, what's um, Joyride was great. Bottoms was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another one I've seen recently, and, and this just didn't land for me at all. Which is a real shame, because I, I really like the idea, I like the cast, and it had some lovely, meaningful moments, but it just didn't land for me at all. Just so I was so happy when it was done. I didn't want to watch another second of it. Mm. So, I think for me, star-wise, I think I'm going two stars on this. Really? And I... It's not a one-star movie, but I, I would never give it more than two. I'm never ever going to watch it again. I, I think for me, it's it is only just barely a three. Like just yeah. hanging on by like if it had if I laughed one fewer times, maybe you know, like it's mm. it's fine. I think there's probably people who will connect with it, and uh, I think it's I think it's fine. It's fine. I really wish it was better but it's fine. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Like, I think if it was a two-star movie, I would have more to say. Because I would have more. <laughs> like, That's it's just not... It's it's not bad. Um, and it's not great. And it's not interestingly either of those things. Is sort of the problem. It's just fine. And maybe that's like... Maybe that's worse. I don't know. Um mm-hmm. And I'm sure that at some point I'll come home and my wife will be watching it and I'll be like, oh yeah, this movie. And I'll enjoy the last half hour again. And that'll be fine. Yeah. Um, like, if I do end up watching it again, I don't regret having watched it. I doubt I will regret catching it you know, some other time down the road, but I don't think I'm ever going to choose to watch it again. Yeah, yeah. So, with all that in mind, again, I think it's just ever so barely uh, a three. I, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? I'm now. Ne- I would never choose to watch this movie ever again. Three stars. Like I feel like that should lose a star by definition. Hmm. But that's but that shows the ridiculous nature of any kind of movie rating system. Like how do how do you justify any of it? But uh, no, I think I think watch your your willingness to rewatch something. Is- well, again, like. <clears throat> I, it's very. I doubt that I will ever put it on, but I live in a house with other people, uh, with another person, and it's the type of thing she she will almost certainly rewatch, and when uh-huh. she does, I'll be fine with it. Right, that's fair. 
Right. And she liked it more than I did, and I liked it more than you did, and that's fine. Oh, um, okay. <clears throat> um, yeah, she thought it was super cute. And I don't oh, okay. I don't 100%. I don't disagree with that exactly. Yeah. But it worked better for her than it did for me. And, oh, that's good. And again, like, when she eventually watches it again, I will sit down and be like, oh, yeah, I'll watch this again. Like, so, like, just because I'm not probably ever going to choose to watch it again um, doesn't mean I'm never going to see it again. And it also doesn't mean that mm -hmm. I'm not going to enjoy the parts that I enjoyed. So, yes. But I'm also like, part of that too is that, like, especially lately, like this whole year, especially, I have been very much choosing, like, when it comes down to should I watch a new thing, something I haven't seen before or something I know I'm going to enjoy. I'm very mm -hmm. much leaning towards let's watch something I haven't seen before. So mm -hmm. that's uh, that's another part of it as well. Mm -hmm. That's fair. Fair enough. Yeah. Good. Well, should we wrap it there? We've just hit an hour. Yes, we should. We should wrap it up there. So if uh, if you've been listening the whole this whole time, thank you so much. We appreciate you. Uh, this has been our show. If you'd like to support us, uh, once again, we have you can. We do have a Patreon. You can find it in the show notes. It's patreon.com slash mcsimpson. Uh, <clears throat> that will very directly help us keep the lights on here at Awesome Friday HQ. Um, but also, um, share the podcast. Hit the like button. Hit the subscribe button. Give us a five-star review. We're on whatever platform you're listening to and all of the other ones as well. Uh, if you could help us out and get us in front of more earballs, we would be uh, very much appreciative. Um. Uh, if you'd like to follow us individually, you can find my uh, Simon's homepage is temporarypen.com and mine is stretched.ca and you can find all of our recent work and all of our social links there. There are way too many of them now, uh, so that's where you'll find them. And also this episode will have a homepage, uh, a home post on awesomefriday.ca where you will find Just Watch Powered stream, uh, streaming links that if you use those to watch, you use them to Click on them. They'll take you to where you can watch the film or rent it or buy it. And if you do those things, that will also help us keep the lights on. So please go ahead and do that too. That link will also be in the show notes. Um, we are also here in Vancouver on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations. Um, which someone complained to me about this acknowledgement. And I'm just going to say it's important to acknowledge these things. Uh, and I'm going to keep doing it. So if that's not your thing, uh, uh, tough. I don't know. Like it's 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 an important step. It's a minimal step. I'll grant you that much. But it is still a step, and it is worth taking. Building awareness is never not worth it. I think not worth it. Um, but that is the end of the show. Uh, and one last time, thank you so much for listening to us on this awesome Friday. Thanks, bye.